The following podcast contains adult themes and is suitable for mature audiences only. Hello and welcome to Lyrics of Their Life, the podcast that talks about the extraordinary lives lived by those that wrote or performed the songs we know and love. I'm your host Adam Hampton and in today's episode we'll be exploring the life and music of blues legend Robert Johnson. While Robert Johnson died at the early age of 27, recording just 29 tracks and being photographed just two or three times in his lifetime, Robert Johnson was regarded as the king of the Delta blues singers and was considered as one of the greatest blues musicians of all time and a pioneer in the early stages of rock and roll. Without his innovative guitar playing and songwriting style, many believe we might never have been introduced to rock and roll and the many evolving genres of music to this day. While very little was known about the life of Robert Johnson, Those who are aware no doubt have heard the tales of Robert venturing down to the crossroads to sell his soul to the devil in exchange for a successful career as a blues musician. But do you know what really happened that dark and lonesome night at the crossroads? Did it actually happen like this? How did these rumours start and who exactly was Robert Johnson? Come with me on an intriguing journey as we delve into one of the greatest stories in music history and the life of a talented man who passed away way before his time. This is the story of Robert Johnson. This is Lyrics of Their Life. Robert Johnson was born Robert Leroy Johnson on the 8th of May, 1911, in the Mississippi Delta area in a small town called Hazelhurst. Robert was raised by his African-American parents in the Hazelhurst area, known for its floodplains, plantations, and of course the famous Mississippi River, while other reports suggest he was born in the nearby township of Martinsville. Before Robert was even born, his mother Julianne Majors would marry and have 10 children to an African-American man named Charlie Dodds, who was a successful farmer, carpenter, and furniture maker, where Julia would also take Charlie's surname, becoming Julianne Dodds. Robert was also the grandson of a line of African-American slaves. By the time Robert was born, his mother was already around 37 years old, and this would be her 11th child, so there were fears of there being complications during childbirth, but everything went to plan. Adding to the complications, however, was the fact that Robert's real biological father was named Noah Johnson. Robert was actually born out of wedlock to Julia Ann Majors, or Dodds, and Noah Johnson, who was a travelling plantation farmhand, lumber camp worker, and labourer at a local sawmill and happened to be coming through the area for work at the time. The affair between Noah and Julianne occurred after Charlie Dodds was forced to go on the run in 1909 during the middle of the night with a lynch mob hot on his heels. In order to escape, Charlie was even said to have been disguised as a woman in order to slip through the mob's fingers. 
This left Julia lonely for quite some time, as Charlie was presumed missing or even dead. During his absence, Noah and Julia fell for one another, despite Julia still being married to Charlie. Noah already had two children, named Ella and Nelson, and had a wife named Mary, located in a nearby town. But unfortunately, Noah wasn't the type to hang around and left a pregnant Julia not too far into their relationship, leaving her to bring Robert into the world on her own as a child without a father and with her other 10 children to care for. Julia gave birth to Robert in a small old basic wooden shack, where as a family of 12 they all lived in until Robert was at least two years old. Some of Robert's half-siblings included his older sister in her 20s at the time, named Louise, followed by Harriet, Bessie, Willie, Lula, Carrie, Cody, John, Melvin, and Leroy. Their ages all varied significantly, but in those times, birth records were often inconsistent in regards to their age, as they were often altered to make younger children appear older, to suggest they would be ready for work in the field sooner. In regards to Julia's husband Charlie Dodds, who was on the run, he was believed to have gotten in some trouble with a group of men, most notably the Italian brothers John and Joseph Marchetti, who noticed Charles had been flirting with the same woman that his boss Joseph Marchetti was interested in. Charlie was also said to be resented by his fellow workers, as they had been jealous of Charlie's success in the farming industry, as he had done quite well for himself and his family, despite being a black man. This same group of white men, known as a lynch mob, chased Charlie out of town as he fled up the Mississippi Delta region, all the way up to Memphis, Tennessee, where he settled into an apartment on handworker circuit, escaping his potentially cruel fate. Lynchings, or lynch mobs, were ways for racist white men, usually in the south of the USA, to take control over the African American community by accusing them of crimes such as rape, murder, and stealing, among other things, and arresting them in some cases with the aid of police officers. The horrendous laws at the time of the Reconstruction Era allowed them to take matters into their own hands, giving them the freedom to terrorise innocent black men and their families. In the early 1900s, it was said that if you just looked at a white man the wrong way, you could be arrested or chased by a lynch mob. In most cases, if you were caught, you would be physically beaten or even hung, with the accused not even getting the chance to plead their innocence. This made life at the time incredibly dangerous for the African-American community, including Robert and his family, as paranoia and fear was ever present, as you could be taken at any moment without warning. The Mississippi at the time was the worst for lynchings, and would remain in the top three for deaths via lynchings in the country until it was practically outlawed in 1968 through many protests by the African-American community. Sadly, however, the most recent case in the Mississippi region occurred in 2011, which is horrible to think how recent it was. Masters would even threaten their slaves or workers that if they messed up, they would be sent down to the Mississippi as it had a reputation as being a nasty and unsafe place for the African-American community. Charlie, however, managed to arrive safely in Memphis, where he would hide out for a number of years. Robert's life would be quite unsettled from as early as age two, with Julia and the kids hitting the road, leaving Hazelhurst, as Julia was said to have gotten into some trouble with the law in the area. As a family, they traveled along the road, heading from town to town and migrant labor camp to camp, being pushed from one house or plantation to the next as they slowly made their way from Hazelhurst to Memphis over a lengthy period of time, living briefly in Crystal Springs, Jackson, 
Vicksburg, Yazoo City, Greenville, Greenwood, Cleveland, Charlestown, Marks, and all the way along the Delta area or Mississippi River. On one occasion, in the middle of the night, Julia fled with the kids from a plantation in Arkansas after doing something to anger the deputy of the plantation. What she did, however, was unconfirmed. It was even suggested by historians and those that knew the family well that Julia at one stage even deserted Robert and the children along the way for a brief period, only to return to them. While on the road, Robert and the family would find themselves in the firing line as they were easy targets when on the move, with lynch mobs and even the Ku Klux Klan still being prevalent in the area. After fleeing from the plantation, they found themselves hiding in Elena, Arkansas before boarding a freight train until they themselves arrived in Memphis. Which raises the question, was Julia searching this whole time for Charlie with word that he was still alive and spotted in Memphis despite her previously signing a divorce paper in 1910? When they got to Memphis, they tracked down Charlie Dodds, who was now going by the name Charlie Spencer to evade trouble from lynch mobs as Julia and the kids were reunited. This was only for Charlie to notice another child standing there named Robert Johnson. With Noah out of the picture, Charlie would raise Robert as his own and gave Robert his surname of Spencer. Although Charles was technically his stepfather and quite a strict man, he would become the only father figure Robert had so far in his life. Charlie also forgave Julia for the affair and allowed her and the children to move in with him. Julia and Charles would then remarry and Robert wouldn't discover the true details of who his real father was until much later into his teenage years, as he was too young to understand it all at the time and would only know himself as Robert Spencer. While living in Memphis, Robert got to experience and learn about the more sophisticated lifestyle and it was quite different to the life on a plantation as he was exposed to a range of new experiences. Not too long after being reunited, Julia and Charles' marriage had broken down once again, as Julia had never really felt comfortable again within their relationship. She grew tired of married life of Charlie, and the two decided to get a divorce. While records vary, it was more than likely that Julia had once again left her children, including Robert behind, with Charles left to look after them all. Julia then moved back down to the town of Robinsonville, where she had met and quickly married a man named William Dusty Willis, who was 24 years younger than her. Robert would live with his siblings and his stepfather Charlie up until the age of seven, where he attended the Carnes Avenue Colored School, a school for the African-American community only, as they were racially segregated from white students at the time. Robert would be taught all the basic subjects such as language, geography, physical education and sport, and reading and mathematics, but his favourite of all was music class, where he was first introduced to the wonderful world of music and the escape from reality it would bring him. Sometime then around 1920, after two years of living with Charles, Robert and his half-siblings would finally reunite and move back with their mother Julia in the townships of Crittenden and Lucas in the state of Arkansas. Robert would attend school here for a short period of time before the family were on the move once again across the Mississippi River this time to a small village called Commerce, located close to Tonica and Robinsonville. Robert and his family would settle in on a cotton plantation called Abbey and Leatherman. This would be where Robert would spend many years growing up and even retain the last name of Spencer at the time given to him by his stepfather Charlie. Despite at the time being nicknamed Little Robert Dusty by his new stepfather Dusty Willis. 
Many believe Robert was quite a well-educated boy, which can be supported by the quality of his signature. While former fellow students said that Robert seemed to do quite well and was a capable student. Robert was enrolled in the Indian Creek School at Tunica and St. Peter's School and would spend most of his schooling days here, with the latest records showing Robert was still enrolled in school by 1927 at the age of 16. His friend Willie Coffey believes Robert would be absent from school quite a bit and then all of a sudden would return out of the blue, suggesting Robert and his siblings would go and visit Charles Spencer back in Memphis and then return. With Robert's friend Wynne Clark, they would always get to hang out together as they would run around town together, play games in the dirt. They would go fishing all day long down by the river, with both boys' mothers working on the plantation together and being close friends. Both Robert and Wynne would also get into trouble, however, for sneaking out of a night to attend late-night parties as teenagers, where they would come home to receive smack bottoms. Wynne says he remembers Robert singing during these years, but that he often couldn't understand a word he was saying, as he often mumbled when he sang. Julia's new husband, Dusty Willis, was a sharecropper in the area on a plantation site, meaning that Dusty would rent the land from the landowner for farming and pay his rent via sharing the profits. The area at the time was well known for growing cotton, so it's likely this is what they were farming on the plantation. Unfortunately for Robert, his stepfather Dusty didn't approve of him. It's believed Dusty abused Robert physically, often beating him, and he was known to be quite harsh on him. Life was very tough in these times, and before Robert was even a teenager, he was sent to work on the farm just like all the other plantation workers. On the plantation, they pulled plows manually, collected and seeded crops, and would cut timber for all sorts of uses. Robert, however, was a different breed to everyone else, and often clashed with his stepfather, as he refused to work and couldn't see the sense in pulling plows and working hard in the sweltering heat for little return. Robert instead wanted to be a musician and would spend much of his time practicing on his homemade guitar. This wasn't any ordinary guitar though, as it was known as a diddly bow. When Robert was supposed to be working in the hot sun, he would often run off into the shade to the side of his house, where he had designed his very own diddly bow guitar to pass the time. Robert had nailed three individual nails into the horizontal timbers on the wall of the outside of the house, and another three nails about a metre or so away, vertically below them. Robert would then grab three separate strands of fishing or fencing wire, whatever he had at the time, and tie the wire around the nails on either end. Then to reduce the slack in the wire, and to stop it from laying flat, Robert would slide an old glass bottle down to the bottom of the wire, creating tension on it, which would then pull the wire out from the wall at one end, allowing for the wire to act like strings, and to be strummed like a guitar. Robert would pluck at the strings and use the top narrow half of a glass bottle to slide up and down the strings, creating a sound that excited him. This was Robert's first ever guitar before he was lent a guitar to play by other plantation workers and his half-brother Leroy. Leroy was also an aspiring musician and of course was much older than Robert. As he would travel around the countryside playing on the streets with his guitar and occasionally he would also play the piano. It's also believed that Leroy was one of the first to show Robert a thing or two on guitar and introduced him to the blues, being an inspiration to his younger brother. As Robert grew older, he also started playing the Jew's harp, or more commonly known as the jaw harp, which was a small mouth instrument. He also began listening to the radio, which ranged from blues, ragtime, pop, ballads and folk tunes. 
Robert also had his very own harmonica that he enjoyed playing, even creating his very own harmonica holder from old wire, so he could play without using his hands, as he would run off on his own clapping to a beat, humming away on his harmonica, and then playing his guitar as well. Interestingly enough, Robert hardly played harmonica when he became a musician, only pulling it out on the rare occasion. Robert would also make his own capo and thumb pick for his guitar, until affording the money to purchase one later on that was professionally made. While the workers toiled away in the heat, Robert would play for them in the field and practice his newfound passion, as there were no radios in the field or entertainment to keep morale up while they worked. This however got Robert in a lot of trouble with his stepfather Dusty, who hated Robert playing the guitar and the fact that he continually chose music over farm work. The more Robert played for those working the field, he would occasionally earn a nickel or a dime, but like Robert, they didn't have much money to spare as it was. This would lead Robert to venture off of his stepfather's plantation, as he began to play at other plantations and musical gatherings in the area, attempting to make some money in the process. This particular area of the Mississippi was known to attract blues musicians from all over the Mississippi and beyond to local juke joints, in particular Robinsonville's very own plantation called Will Dockery's, just outside the town of Robinsonville. Juke joints were little old plantation barrel houses that were converted into bars or clubs during the slavery era for African Americans to socialise and relax after toiling away in the fields. Post-slavery times, racism and white supremacy was of course still around, and due to the southern state and local laws, known as Jim Crow laws, no African American would be able to enter a white establishment or bars under any circumstances. So instead they made their own hangouts, known as juke joints. During these times, life was pretty tough, living conditions were harsh, many were poor, and there was often no guarantee of continued work at the time, so juke joints were the perfect place to let your hair down. Usually on the weekends, locals would come have a drink, share a meal, gamble, and listen to some hired blues musicians or buskers, where they spent much of their hard-earned money on the weekend gathering. The furniture would be pushed to the back of the room, and a weekend gathering of fun, dance, and music was to be had, as all local plantation workers and families would head on down and enjoy some great country blues. It was a great way for the hard-working African-American families to let off some steam, express and enjoy themselves, and escape their harsh living conditions. No one played the blues like those from the Mississippi Delta region, with the blues being a product of the hard times endured by the African-American community, as they would often sing in the fields dating back to the days of slavery. These blues musicians that would come to the juke joints would sing songs usually detailing relationship breakdowns, the hard life of a working man on the farm, and living in times clouded with racism, paranoia, and torture from white Americans. With songs about these issues resonating with many in the community, and especially Robert, Robert aspired to be like these musicians that passed through as they went town to town with nothing but their guitar and their clothes on their back as they would hop on trains, hitching rides in automobiles, or even walk to their destination, travelling anywhere they please to earn a nickel or a dime. Robert loved how free they looked, and to him it was obvious they loved what they were doing. But in these towns, no one had money to give, so the place to go was in the cities, who hadn't been exposed to that sort of music before. Many who lived in the area of Robinsonville claimed the musicians came because of the whiskey, which was cooked and brewed in the area, as they hoped to get their hands on some of the finest whiskey in the country. 
1927, Robert was even taught his first song, an eventual favourite song of his, called I'm Gonna Sit Down and Tell My Mama, with Harry Hardrock Glenn teaching him the track. By 1928, Robert, while only an amateur musician at this stage, would set out to perform in various towns in the area, such as Lake Cormorant, Pritchard, Banks, and at times he would even head into Arkansas, catching rides on freight trains, hitchhiking, or just simply walking to his next location, with just his guitar strapped to his back. Robert would sing, play the guitar, harmonica, and jews harp, and occasionally he was said to have jumped on the piano and pump organ. His stepfather Dusty would label Robert as lazy and would refuse to come watch him play when he started out playing in the area, and also disliked the type of music he played. At this stage, Robert wasn't a great musician, but would earn just enough here and there to get by while on the road. Over the years, Robert continued to visit his stepfather Charlie Dodds, aka Charles Spencer, in Memphis, who had since remarried a woman named Molly and had two daughters together. So it was clear to see who Robert's true father had always been, despite being biologically unrelated. Charles would actually later move nearby to Robert, close to Robinsonville, but would soon relocate back to Memphis with Robert's help after things didn't work out in the area, but the two appeared to remain close. After Robert's journeys as a musician, soon enough, Robert would return to Robinsonville to resume working in the fields. On February 16, 1929, Robert, aged 17, would marry 14-year-old Virginia Travis after lying about their ages, with Robert stating he was 21 and saying Virginia was 18. She too was of an African-American background. But just before the pair tied the knot, Robert's mother Julia decided it was the right time to reveal who his real father was, informing him that Noah Johnson was the man. From this day on, and on his marriage certificate, Robert would change his name from Spencer back to Johnson. By all accounts, Robert and Virginia shared a loving relationship, and Robert was a good, loyal husband who respected his wife. Together they moved in with Robert's half-sister Bessie and her husband Granville Hines, who lived on the Klein Plantation, slightly east of Robinsonville. Despite strongly disliking farming and instead dreaming of becoming a musician, Robert promised that he would give up music to go work as a farmhand on the plantation after discovering that Virginia had fallen pregnant and that he would need to provide a more steady income for his young family. Both Robert and Virginia were over the moon to have a child on the way and were very excited. They moved to a different plantation together in the Robinsonville area and after eight and a half months into her pregnancy, Virginia went to stay with her grandmother Lula on a plantation in the town of Penton, Mississippi, so she could be close to her family to prepare for the birth of their child. Their intentions were that Robert would stay behind to work, saving up a bit more money, and then travel up to be with her for the birth. But not long after Virginia left, Robert became restless and decided to start playing guitar again and singing blues music. Via freight train, Robert would venture to all of his previous busking spots up the Mississippi River and up Highway 1 as he slowly made his way to Virginia and the baby. Virginia was raised in a strict plantation working Christian family like many that lived in the area or on plantations. Robert on the other hand wasn't as invested in religion and as he played blues music he was seen as a devil worshipper. This caused tensions between Virginia's family and Robert who thought that Robert was doing the work of the devil. At the time, blues was considered to be a style of music that was created through the devil and looked down upon by the Christian community. 
Baptist preachers would say to people that they would go to hell if they started listening or playing the blues. They put fear into the people that if you didn't attend church, then the devil will come after you, and that even getting into physical fights or altercations were a sign of worshipping the devil. However, tragedy would strike when during childbirth, Virginia and the baby sadly passed away on or around April 10th, 1930. Robert, who had been busking while on his way, had arrived late to find that Virginia and the baby had already been buried together in the local Dark Corner Cemetery in Penton. Robert was obviously devastated and the family were furious at Robert and asked him, where were you? Were you out playing the devil's music? Virginia's family would blame Virginia and the baby's death all on Robert. The whole community would shun and blame him for their deaths and basically forced him out of town. With his wife's family distrusting him and dealing with the death of his wife and newborn, many believed that this was the very moment where Robert completely changed his outlook on life and religion. Robert was shattered mentally and he renounced any faith he had in God or religion and instead turned to blues music, dedicating his life to this passion. Robert Johnson then moved back to Robinsonville to live with his mother Julia and stepfather Dusty Willis. It's believed around this time that Robert may have acquired the brand of a stellar guitar after it was described as a wood-bodied resonator guitar. While he is said to have travelled as a musician around the Mississippi area during June 1930, alongside a female musician, Frank House, the brother of blues legend Sun House, and Punk Taylor. Those that remember Robert at this time recall him sporting longer hair, almost like an afro. He wore khaki pants, overalls, and a plaid jacket, typically dressed like a country person. This would be much different to his later appearance of short hair, suits, and a fedora. A month later, in July 1930, accomplished blues musicians passed through the area, including Sun House and Willie Brown. Sun House even moved into the town of Robinsonville, just two miles away from where Robert was living, with the town already housing another well-known blues musician named Charlie Patton, which was exciting for Robert, who was a huge fan of both of theirs, but especially Sun House. Having these stars in Robinsonville would also attract musicians and audiences from all around the Delta, Mississippi, even from as far as Memphis, with the whiskey also being the second main attraction, as they could pass through and grab some of the best brewed whiskey in the land. Up to this stage, Robert was seen as an average musician, and while he was said to be talented on the harmonica, he was a terrible guitarist and wasn't a very pleasant singer. But Robert wanted to be a lot more than just an amateur musician, earning the odd nickel here and there. Instead, Robert dreamed of being a star that was loved and adored by all. Robert would idolise Sun House, who was around 8 or 9 years older than him, and he wanted to be just like him. When Willie Brown came to town to meet up with Sun House to play at the same Duke joints together, Robert would follow them around, watching every show and studying their technique and style of blues, soaking in every piece of knowledge he could. Robert himself wanted his chance to play in Duke joints as that's where the money was. Sun House remembers seeing Robert at their shows and said that Robert would often be sat in the corner of the room on his own watching them and then trying to imitate them on his own guitar. He would try and learn everything they did and force his way into their entourage. But Robert of course wasn't very good and just couldn't get the hang of it. He was so terrible that people would tell him to stop as they felt he was just producing useless noise and not music. Robert was a regular at their shows and Sunhouse and Willie Brown were like mentors to him. 
but Sunhouse revealed that they started to get frustrated when Robert started fooling around with their guitars and trying to play them when they weren't looking, as they were worried he would break something like a string. They would turn around to find sneaky Robert Johnson strumming away on their guitars. Sunhouse and Willie Brown put up with Robert's curious behaviour for quite some time until they finally had enough of him pestering them, the audience, and their guitars. They felt he was a good kid, but a nuisance, and was always getting in the way or pestering them when they were trying to relax after a gig. So on one very fateful evening, they both told him to get lost. Robert, feeling betrayed and embarrassed, turned to them and is believed to have said, I will show you, before storming out of the juke joint and disappearing for months on end with little to no trace of his whereabouts. Many, including Sun House, thought that Robert had left the Delta area altogether for a period of 8 to 12 months, starting in 1930, while others claim he left for as many as three years, returning in 1933, with no record of his movements being known for quite some time. After this period of time had passed, Robert made a shock entrance at a juke joint in Banks, Mississippi, where Sun House and Willie Brown were both playing that night. As Sun and Willie began playing, all of a sudden Robert Johnson comes walking through the door with his guitar, shocking everyone who knew him, especially Willie and Sun House. Sun House then said to Willie Brown, quote, Look who's coming in the door, got a guitar on his back. Willie replied, Oh that's little Robert. Sun then said, Yeah that's him. Sun House, who was expecting the same old obnoxious boy he once knew, then said to Robert, Boy now where are you going with that thing? referring to his guitar, as Sun continued by saying, to noise somebody else to death again. Robert walked straight up to the pair of accomplished blues musicians and requested that they step aside and give him a chance to show everybody what he's got. Although reluctant and not taking him too seriously, Sunhouse and Willie Brown agreed and allowed Robert to take a seat on stage. As the audience awaited for Robert to start playing, he pulled his guitar onto his lap and started strumming his guitar, shocking the audience and his older mentors. The doubt on people's faces quickly turned to disbelief when Robert played up a storm. His fingers moved so quick and produced such a sound that it was like he was playing two guitars at once. Using a slider and thumb pick, Robert played like no one had ever heard before. Then he opened his mouth and began singing along to the tune as the audience began clapping, cheering and dancing along. Meanwhile, Sunhouse and Willie Brown couldn't believe this was the same Robert that once followed them around, annoying everyone with his terrible playing. He was that good that he was doing things they never could, and was all of a sudden better than they were, like a seasoned veteran musician. Some even saying that he played guitar like someone would a piano. It was that unique. When Robert finished his performance, shock and joy over what they had just heard turned into fear for some that previously knew Robert. They wondered how on earth did he do it, and rapidly changed from an unknown novice to arguably the greatest guitarist or blues musician in the land in just 8 to 12 months. As small towns do, the townsfolk got talking after the show, and the rumour started to spread that Robert must have got his skills by hanging out down by the crossroads. The rumour would spread like wildfire, and soon enough everyone believed Robert had acquired his talent from the devil himself. The myth has long become associated with Robert and his story after being associated with Hoodoo. Hoodoo first originated with the people of the Congo in Central Africa, with the practice being brought over with African American slaves, 
with their belief that demons, spirits, and the devil could be summoned to grant wisdom or abilities to better your life in exchange for your soul. For the people of the Congo, it was a way to gain control of your life in bad situations, despite of course holding consequences. However, Robert was believed to be one of the first to sell his soul at the crossroads, and due to the rumours, he would spark others' intrigue to do it for themselves. The legend goes that in search of his dream to be a star blues musician, Robert made his way down to the crossroads, where four separate roads in different directions all meet. Robert would have then got down on his knees at the centre of the crossroads and held his guitar up to the sky, which then summons the devil. The devil then appears behind Robert, taps him on the shoulder, and the guitar is then passed to the devil, but you must keep looking straight ahead and not look behind you. The devil is then said to have tuned his guitar, played a few chords or even songs, and then the devil goes to hand the guitar back and says, if you take the guitar back, your soul is now mine. Robert was then believed to have accepted the deal, and the power of a pro-blues musician was instantly his. However, this meant that the devil now owned Robert's soul and his fate, and whenever the devil chooses, death could come for him. Many to this day believe that Robert actually practiced hoodoo, but it is uncertain with lack of evidence if this was true or not, despite later references in his music, which is evident in the song, Come On In My Kitchen. According to Sun House, Robert also returned with an extra seventh string attached to his guitar, suggesting perhaps that the devil had it put on there, but it is uncertain whether this was also true. The rumours, however, were fuelled by devil-fearing Christians who claimed that the blues was the music of the devil, while others believed that Robert played on the rumours and embraced it as part of his gimmick to make people fear him and back off when he was on the road. Blues music had already been associated by Christians as a sin to play and as the devil's music, and as the content in the lyrics was the polar opposite to singing about Jesus or God, this was seen as a threat to the Christian way of life. It's most likely that Robert played on these already in place misconceptions and fear, and the more the religious people fought back, the more he ran with the myth. Robert's extended family and those close to him dispelled the myth, however, saying there was a plausible explanation for how Robert became such a good guitarist, despite also having a spiritual twist to it. The most likely scenario was that Robert decided to return to his birth town of Hazelhurst, Mississippi, to track down his biological father, Noah Johnson, and attempt to meet him for the first time. Unfortunately, Robert wouldn't find his father, and instead found himself meeting an older man, originally from Alabama, named Isaiah, or Ike Zimmerman, in the nearby town of Beauregard, near Martinsville. Ike was a veteran blues musician, who was apparently quite the guitar teacher, and just in the local area, he was known as one of the best guitarists around. Ike, who was around four years older than Robert, took him under his wing, allowed Robert into his family home to stay, and would mentor Robert on how to become a great blues musician and guitar player. Together they would head to the local cemetery that was located across from Mike's home, and the pair would play music together as they sat side by side on gravestones. It was a great spot for practice, as no one was there to complain about the noise they were making. It was also a great place for inspiring songs about spirits, demons, and the devil. While according to Zimmerman, the best time to write songs in the cemetery was at midnight while seated on a gravestone, as the many ghosts would come out to teach you how to play the blues. The pair became good mates and spent a lot of time together here. During his time in Martinsville with Ike, Robert had also met a much younger woman named Virgie Mae Smith, where the two became romantic. 
They were only together briefly, but Virgie would fall pregnant to Robert in late March, early April 1931. Their relationship was cut short, however, as her family, like his previous wife Virginia, were disapproving of Robert being a blues musician playing the devil's music. Robert wanted her to join him back in Robinsonville and join him on the road while he plays music, but Virgie's strict Christian family objected to this and didn't want her or the baby having anything to do with Robert. In May 1931, just a month or so after his first child was conceived, Robert moved on and found himself a new partner, marrying a woman named Coletta Craft, who Robert liked to call Callie. Callie was believed to be a lot older than Robert and already had two children of her own. She was a hospitable wife who would often pamper to his needs, looking after him well. She had a great sense of humour and loved when Robert made her laugh. They enjoyed dancing together and she also supported his musical ambitions, allowing Robert to keep playing. The couple were very much in love, and together they moved to Clarksdale, Mississippi, where they settled for some time before Coletta fell pregnant also. With two potential babies to two different women on the way, Robert had a lot to consider. With Callie's blessing, Robert continued to play music every Saturday and ventured to the local towns of Beauregard, Martinsville, Jackson, Hazelhurst, and Georgetown. Unfortunately, however, Robert wouldn't be the same loyal husband he once was with his first wife, and some say that he became a sinner after the crossroads, as Robert was believed to have been unfaithful to Callie and that his eyes often wandered. On December 31st, 1931, Robert and his ex-girlfriend Virgie May welcomed a baby boy into the world, naming him Claude Johnson. Claude would sadly see his father just twice before Robert's death, and would never really get to know him personally, as his grandfather strongly objected to Robert's blues music influencing him. Robert was denied access to his son, and instead decided to focus on the impending birth of his child with Coletta. But Robert did try to write to Claude over the years to no avail, with the grandfather hiding these messages. It's believed that in May 1932, history would repeat itself once again, when Coletta, or Collie, also died during childbirth, becoming the second wife and child of Robert's, that had met the same fate. Although their relationship had fallen apart due to Robert's wayward ways and unfaithful behaviour, this rocked Robert, who was left alone once again and couldn't believe his luck. Constantly getting knocked down by losing loved ones, being refused to see his son and mother of his child, and being reminded he was a sinner and doing the devil's work by playing the blues, it all just became too much. After months or even years away from Robinsonville, a now highly trained musician Robert Johnson arose to claim his revenge and returned to prove a point to Sunhouse and Willie Brown, leading us right back to the moment he rocked the Duke joint that evening and starting rumours of his crossroads encounter with the devil. Robert decided to fulfil the role that everyone had set for him. He couldn't shake it as he played the blues, and he started embracing it, taking on the devil tag. Robert Johnson was now a man on a mission as he set out to be the king of the Delta Blues. Hi everyone, that's where we'll leave that story for this week. 
Thank you so much for joining me for part one of the Robert Johnson story. There is still part two to come, which will be available in a fortnight from now. As we go in depth into the life of Robert Johnson on the road, we take a look at the 29 songs Robert recorded, what caused Robert to pass away at the age of 27, and how he became known as one of the greatest and most influential blues musicians of all time. Don't forget to check out our other episodes from season one and two. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and TikTok, and even Spotify and YouTube where you can find a range of playlists of music videos and songs from every artist covered in lyrics of their life podcast so far. If you really enjoy the podcast and would like to give back for the hard work that goes into it, it would be greatly appreciated if you could leave a review on iTunes, let your friends know about what they've been missing out on, and click the free subscribe button to the podcast so you can receive notifications when new episodes become available direct to you. If you would like to support the podcast at one step further, then feel free to head to our Patreon page where you can pledge your support for as little as $1 a month. Every bit of support is greatly appreciated and it means I can continue bringing you more great episodes in the future. A link to our Patreon and buymeacoffee.com can be found in the show notes as well as our website at lyricsoftheirlife.com. Once again, thank you all so much for listening. I'm your host Adam Hampton and this is Lyrics of Their Life.